This episode is supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock, just like you do. Learn about their match day giveaway. Panacea is giving out five awards of $500 to medical students entering the 2021 match. Visit panaceafinancial.com forward slash match day for more details. Panacea Financial, a division of Sona Bank, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey, Paul, we're back. <laughs> I, I will never be able to match that energy ever, but yes, we are. <laughs> it's another physical exam episode. Tonight, we're going to be talking about abdominal pain. Uh, we'll introduce our wonderful co-host in a second here. This is the Curbsiders, and Paul, will you tell people what is it that we do on, on this show? Sure. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge, and Today, we have an expert to talk about one of my favorite topics, the physical examination. This time, we're focusing on the mysterious abdomen and all the all the pains that can come with it. And we gave our poor patient all kinds of diagnoses, and we'll talk about how we actually got there over the course of the episode. And with us is the returning many times guest and now host of his own show, Cribsiders, the great Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Great to see you guys. Great to be back. Justin, you want to tell us about the guest and uh, anything else about the episode? Absolutely. So this is another episode in our physical exam series that was made with the assistance from funding from the New York Academy of Medicine. And on this series, we focus on evidence-based physical exam and how to critically integrate them into clinical decision-making processes. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Andrew Olson. He's an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School, where he practices hospital medicine and pediatrics. He's the director of the medical school's sub-internship in critical care that focuses on the development and assessment of competence to facilitate transition to residency. His academic focus is on the development of methods to teach about the diagnostic process, as well as methods to improve diagnostic reasoning in clinical care. He's the leader of the Diagnostic Excellence Project, which is developing and evaluating a series of virtual patient cases for medical students about the diagnostic process and diagnostic error. He is an expert clinical diagnostician and really kind of helped walk us through an approach to abdominal pain and the different levels of severity. I thought this was a great episode. So please enjoy this part one for our physical exam on abdominal pain. Our first patient, Mr. Coley, he's a 55-year-old gentleman with a 30-pack-year smoking history and hyperlipidemia. He's presenting to a clinic with three days of substantial abdominal pain. While booking the appointment, he told the nursing staff that his pain is localized to the upper portion of his belly. He's having some difficulty eating and has nausea, but denies any chest pain or difficulty breathing. So our expert, Dr. Andrew Olson, is here to help us talk out how the physical exam can really help with decision-making. So Dr. Olson, before going into the room, how are you approaching this patient in your head? And more broadly, how is the physical exam guiding your decision-making processes? Yeah, so I think that's a 
awesome place to start. And, and the first thing I'll start with is the second question. Well, I think about an answer to the first. And so I, I think that, <laughs> that in the when we take a physical exam, it's, it's really nothing than a series of diagnostic tests that help us either increase or decrease the probability of a disease. And so just like getting a hemoglobin or, or a CT scan or MRI, a uh, physical exam really helps us modify those probabilities and says, like, patient walks in with this chance of having something bad or not bad, and I try to modify that probability and really decide what interventions and testing, if any, are needed next. And so the other thing I'll just add there is that many conditions, all conditions, excuse me, have an, a, a time where there's a, a threshold at which we diagnose it and we're going to do the next treatment. Uh, we're going to implement treatment. We're going to say, you're going to be fine. You're going to recover from this, this self-limiting thing. And there's some that were like, this is so unlikely that we're not going to do any more testing. Um, but when we're in that middle threshold, that's when we're going to spend most of our time. And come on, as internists, that's where we like to be. And so the, the goal with everything we're going to talk about uh, with this patient and with the subsequent patients to come is trying to modify probability so that I'm now above my treatment threshold or below the testing threshold. And so to modify that. So the, the thing I'll say with abdominal pain is uh, that us as internists are going to approach this really differently than our surgical colleagues. Uh, and I think that sometimes I'm jealous of them because they have the ultimate diagnostic test, which is diagnostic laparotomy. Um, and even though like Athena is really good, like there's nothing that beats a diagnostic um, laparotomy. So I think that, that, again, our question often is, what is going on with this patient? What my next test? And when we consult our surgical colleagues in the hospital, especially where I practice, it's does this patient need an operation? So again, just some, some meta there to think about as we go. But for the first patient, when I walk in here, before I go into the room, I'm going to think, how sick is this patient? Is this patient sick or not? He's in urgent care, which isn't primary care clinic, but it's not the ER. Uh, and so again, our, pro our pretest probability is something really bad, a dissecting aortic aneurysm or something like that, is, is probably lower than if the patient were in the ED. Um, and then there's some basic information you're going to have before you came to the, the before you walk into the room. Set it three days. So that's actually somewhat reassuring that it's not brand new acute in the last two hours, but it uh, appears to be fairly isolated abdominal pain. And so I'm going to be triggering a number of potential questions that I'm going to test for hypotheses uh, as I go into the room. We're going to take a look at his vitals. Is he really hypertensive? Is he concerningly hypotensive? Uh, is there a fever? Uh, and then I think a number of other things, we don't have any labs at this point, but I'm going to walk in and basically the eyeball test is going to be the most important. Uh, we all know that the walk into the room and this patient's not going to stand in urgent care very long patient uh, versus let's sit and have a conversation about this uh, Oster style. I think this is great. I think the eyeball test is often a underrated or uh, un, un, not talked enough about as a physical exam maneuver. Um, and so I think this uh, triaging of how urgent is the abdominal pain seems like a good first series of maneuvers for the physical exam approach. And I think that the question there often is, is how do we classify that? Because abdominal pain and causes of abdominal pain, many people different have different classifications. Is it localized to a certain quadrant? What organ lives in that? Uh, is You can think about different etiologies and classify into ischemic or other infections. You can do that. But I actually think one of the, the helpful frames to use there, a framework is actually, a, and this isn't going to be in a framework book, I don't think, uh, is, is this a surgical abdomen or not? Does this patient require an operation or not? And I think that's a, actually a really challenging uh, thing to determine. And, and the more I do this, the more I realize there's a lot of subtlety when our surgical colleagues and take a look at this patient. But that's the first thing I'm going to see uh, in acute conditions is, does this patient need an operation in the next many hours? 
or do I think there's a substantial likelihood they will, or do we have time to, to think about this and, and work it up uh, at a little more leisurely pace? And so what are those things that you're looking for? What are some red flags, um, mostly on exam, that make you think that the person needs more urgent intervention, that we're above that treatment uh, uh, threshold to get them to the ED at least. Absolutely. So I think that the the key thing there is is peritonitis, and and that's one of the uh, peritonitis. And we'll talk about a few other categories that I think we shouldn't miss, and and hopefully the team here will help me for the other things that I do miss. Um, but I want to know: Does this patient have inflammation of their parietal peritoneum? The reasons patients get acute inflammation of their parietal peritoneum is often that there's something rubbing on it that there shouldn't. And so is there air? Is there free fluid? Uh, is there something in there? Or is there a viscous, often that a viscous is ruptured, or a viscous at danger of rupturing? Uh, and is there something that requires an operation here quite quickly? And so I think this is one of those exams that's really hard for us as internists, though, because blessedly, we don't see a ton of surgical abdomens. And so when you walk in, we think, oh, this patient's got a rigid, firm abdomen. And then you call the surgeon, like, no, 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 that, that, thanks for calling. Uh, but but I think, you know, they, they, they are able to calibrate their exam uh, perhaps better than us. And I think this is one of those things that as we step back and think about how we teach the physical exam, this is one of those times of feeling a lot of abdomen really, really, really important because abdominal pain is probably one of the most common complaints I deal with in the hospital. And most abdomens that I, of patients that I push on, yes, it hurts, but it's not an acute abdomen. I know that within seconds. And so the things we're looking for there are signs of of, of sequelae or signs of parietal peritoneal inflammation. So what are those? The word that's going to come here is rigidity. And rigidity is obviously involuntary contraction of the abdominal muscles that results from inflammation of the, the parietal peritoneum. Now, the one the thing that always goes with rigidity uh, is actually rebound tenderness. And if I ever get admitted and I have an acute admin and you rebound on me, it's not going to go well. That hurts so bad. So many people actually will modify a rebound. It's actually not part of my practice typically. Um, and I do pediatrics a fair bit of the time, and, and I'm going to lose all rapport if I do rebound. Um, and so actually some people advocate, and I haven't seen much published on this, and so this is my opinion rather than, than firmly evidence-based, but percussion tenderness in the abdomen can actually get a sense of this as well. Many people will actually percuss and, and get a sense of that. There's also a lot talked about in kids about hitting on the, on the bottom of the feet, and there is some evidence for that actually. But uh, again, the, the percussion, uh, the t percussion tenderness probably has a little lower likelihood ratio than rebound tenderness, but you're going to have a lot happier patient. And so I'm going to, the first thing I said, as I said, is I'm going to go on, I'm going to look for inflammation of prior to peritoneum. The other thing I, I will he say here is you also want to look at this patient systemically ill. If their blood pressure is 75 systolic and their heart rate's 140, and they have peritoneal inflammation is substantially different than their heart rate 60, their blood pressure is 120, and I can push on their abdomen without concern. The one caveat here, and, and I think that this is a, a bit of a challenge if we make this guy a little bit older, but he does have a 30-pack year smoking history and a history of hyperlipidemia. There's something I'm, I'm always really worried about missing in my older patients and who present with abdominal pain. It's actually mesenteric ischemia. And the classical teaching with mesenteric ischemia, as you all know, is pain out of proportion to exam. And what does that mean is the patient's got this really severe abdominal pain and you feel their belly and it doesn't feel like an acute abdomen. And I have been humbled by this diagnosis multiple times. Uh, also remember that the textbook diagnosis, that we, the textbook case of this where the patient flicks off an embolism and, and, and gets their superior mesenteric artery or something, that happens sometimes, but often it can be a stuttering subacute presentation. And, and so I've, I've learned that and been humbled by that a number of times. And so 
I always a little nervous about that and I always feel a little better when the contrast gets through the superior mesenteric artery um, there. But, but again, I think to recap, I'm looking, is this patient systemically ill? Is there signs of peritonitis that that requires most times an operation? I mean, we'll get into other things as well, spontaneous bacterial infections, peritonitis and things like that that don't require an operation. But does this patient need an operation now, both for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes? And then what other bad things might I be missing potentially? Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Panacea is also excited to announce their match day giveaway. $500 will be awarded to five medical students entering the match in 2021. Entry is free, and students can enter the giveaway on their website until March 31st, 2021. Winners will be selected randomly on April 1st. No purchase necessary for entry. Go to panaceafinancial.com forward slash match day today to learn more. Panacea Financial, a division of Sonobank, member FDIC. Andrew, I think it would be helpful if you described what you're feeling. You mentioned percussing. So if you could just describe how you do that and how you assess for rigidity. And I, I'm not sure rebounding, tell, tell us why rebound is so painful. Like yeah. so those three things you mentioned, the percussion, the rebound and the uh, rigidity. Yeah, I'd love to. So, so in general, when we approach a patient with abdominal pain and we we're going to palpate their abdomen. The patient's nervous because they know we're going to do this and it hurts. If anybody's had a significant intra-abdominal complaint, it really hurts. And by the way, I'm going to make a point here, by the way, before I answer your questions, I think of the answer. There's been a, a long history of not administering opioids to patients with abdominal pain and worrying about clouding the exam. The evidence there is good that says, yes, you may change your exam slightly, but it doesn't change outcomes. That is, you're not going to not operate on somebody who needs an operation. And, and so you're not going to miss bad things. And so for gosh sakes, treat the patient's pain, please, before you do this. So when we look at rigidity, obviously you've warmed up your hands, you have your patient laying in the bed. If you can have them flex their knees a little bit and bring their heels onto the bed, uh, that relaxes the abdominal muscles because the, the concern for all of us is that the muscles are flexed and it can be challenging to determine, is this patient rigid because they just got a wicked six pack or is this patient rigid, do they have abdominal rigidity because they have peritonitis? So then you're going to approach the patient, and this is actually important to find out where is the pain. Is the pain in the upper abdomen, the lower abdomen? Start away from that and lightly begin your palpation. And most people teach palpating at three levels, very light, medium, and deeper palpation. And I think that actually is quite important. One of the things that I've learned over time uh, to do, especially in my, uh, this is an internal medicine podcast, but if I go down to teenagers, because they're kind of little adults, uh, when, I, when I go down, the, the, one of the things I'll often do is have the patient put their hand on my hand and say, you push. Um, it gives some control uh, as well. So the patient, I can still feel things. And so, so it actually can, for the patient, especially with some chronic abdominal pain, who you're concerned about and you want to establish rapport, they can do some of the palpating and control some of the pressure that you're putting on the patient's abdomen. So you're going to palpate and you're going to feel, am I able to palpate deeply? Am I able to press my hand into this patient's abdomen? And then am I able to do that everywhere? Am I able to do that only in one spot? Am I able, oh my gosh, I'm not really able to do that in the right upper quadrant. That's rigidity. And a truly rigid abdomen is something that is not subtle. You're not going to internal medicine the heck out of this one, like, is there rigidity or not? It's quite clear when there is rigidity, that the patient's abdomen is firm and actually unable to relax. You say, relax, take a deep breath, doing all the distraction you can, 
and it hurts everywhere. A truly acute surgical abdomen, a perforated viscous, that is the vast minority of cases, blessedly, that we see. When we look at uh, rebound tenderness, rebound tenderness is taught to look for inflammation of the peritoneum. And the exam maneuver there is that you place deep palpation, slow, deep palpation, and then you release urgently with the idea that you're going to cause like kind of a, a vibrating um, drum head approach. Um, and I've done this a few times in my career with the patient who's really had peritonitis, and it, it really hurts. Uh, and so, so it, and it's one of those things that remember, if you diagnose an acute abdomen now, or you're worried about it, what are you going to sign out when you go home? Serial abdominal exams? Don't do something that hurts really bad the first time. You're going to, the rest of the exams are, are, are going to be hard and the patient's not going to, it's not going to go well. So for percussion, what you do here is actually just what it sounds like. You're again looking to call kind of a drumhead approach uh, to, to the patient's uh, per parietal peritoneum. And so you go and you, and, and you just good old percussion technique in various portions in the abdomen, similar to the, per, the way you would palpate, uh, trying to localize or is there generalized or localized uh, inflammation. So Andrew, you mentioned a bunch of times appropriately that abdominal pain hurts, um, <laughs> which I, I think is, is a terrific point, and I'm not diminishing at all. So, and in fact, actually, I think the patient who tells me, like, you know, every time my stretcher hit a bump, I'm just in agony. Yeah. Um, like, that makes me way more nervous than if I push in someone's belly and they say, ouch, and I let go, and they say, ouch, because I don't quite, like, I'm kind of unsurprised regardless of whether they actually have a surgical abdomen or not. So I guess that was a long-winded way of me asking is exactly how good are these tests sort of compared to history? Is there one test that feels slam dunk home run? You mentioned some are not very subtle, but are there tests... Just from a, a, Matt and I are always looking for that one test or that one thing that will just tell us what the diagnosis is immediately, and we've yet to uh, find it. But are any of any of your diagnostic maneuvers get us there? No, unfortunately, here that this is everything taken together. Uh, I think I, I will say that there there's no good evidence for this because it would be a very challenging study to do. Um, but I am pretty confident in the hands of an experienced clinician saying this is an acute surgical abdomen. I am actually pretty confident in that finding. I don't know that I can give you a likely ratio, but it's pretty good. And actually, the likely ratio would be almost impossible to calculate because that is the reference standard there. And so here we're comparing it against everything. But if I say in the hands of an experienced, that's a terrible pun, in the hands of an experienced examiner, I know that this is a surgical abdomen. I think that's an important thing. The rest of these things are kind of nibbling around the edges of modifying the probabilities here. And remember, your pretest probability is going to be different depending where you are. And so in the clinic, they may be less helpful than my patients in the hospital, and which may be less helpful than the patients in the emergency department. And so I, I think there's no, there's no slam dunk here. Um, but I also will say tests have accuracy and tests have precision. And I think the thing we get all caught up and we're going to talk all night about accuracy but we can actually control some of the precision, and that's practice and getting better and getting feedback. And so um, I think all of us had the experience when we were residents or, or medical students of saying, oh, my gosh, this patient's got an acute abdomen. And somebody walks slowly to the room and says, no, they don't. Right. And I think thinking through that and modifying, calibrating that is actually a really important thing because so you will learn when this is an acute abdomen or when this isn't. But unfortunately, I, I think there's no slam dunk. We did do some research on some of the likelihood ratios that I want to pull up because I want to see what people's response are. But before that, the things that you mentioned, the rebound tenderness, the tenderness, the percussion, and the rigidity, those seem like the, the big ones. What about these other signs like the, the obturator signs, the psoas sign, and McBurney's point, some of these other appendicitis or other abdominal exam maneuvers that we learn in medical school? Are those things that we should be doing on everyone with abdominal pain? What role do they play? Yeah, it's a really 
interesting question that I think we have to sometimes pause and question, why are we doing some of this stuff? And I'm a apologist, but not a romantic for the physical exam. Um, and I think we should treat it with the same rigor that we treat lab tests and imaging, that we shouldn't do something just because some dead person said we should. Uh, but so we should say, should this add to the value of our exam? And so again, likelihood ratios are not generalizable. They are, they are for a modification of a certain condition. And so, so the first set we talked about there was for peritonitis. Now, there it's peritonitis or not peritonitis. For the other things, we're going to go and say, okay, for appendicitis, it's appendicitis or not appendicitis right now. Uh, for cholecystitis, it's cholecystitis or not cholecystitis right now. So just to be clear, that, that, that you know, not to be pedantic, but to modify those, the, again, we're modifying the probability of a certain disease. The other fascinating thing, by the way, just for physical examination fun, uh, is that once mathematically, once we decrease the probability of one disease, mathematically, the probability of another has to go up if something's causing that patient's disorder. And so it's, it's, it's this game of modifying probabilities as we go through a patient's care. So, so, but anyway, if we, I think what appendicitis is interesting, a lot of those things that you've learned uh, over time uh, actually aren't that helpful, unfortunately. And so, um, <laughs> again, palpation at McBurney's point is actually decent, has a decent positive likelihood ratio. If you've, and that's what you do. You, walk, you watch the surgical chief resident walk in and they're, come on. They're the coolest people in the hospital. You all know that, right? Okay. So they walk in and they like, like they just put their hand on the patient's in that one spot and they're like, to the OR, right? Or not. But but so likelihood ratio is 3.4, modifies the probability somewhere then uh, you know, if we say a likelihood ratio of two is 15%, likelihood ratio of five, 30%, likelihood ratio of 10 modifies post-test probability by 45%. So we're somewhere in that 15 to 30% range. So it's not a slam dunk, but it's probably lends some credence. Especially because of all of these conditions in the young, uh, appendicitis actually has a decent pretest probability. Many patients presenting to the emergency department have acute appendicitis who have right lower quadrant abdominal pain. But unfortunately, uh, the so and remember that right lower quadrant tenderness palpation is different than palpation at McBurney's point. So so you actually want to find the right location uh, between the uh, anterior superior iliac spine um, and the, the pubis, um, the, the superior aspect of the pubis, and you want to feel in there and probably a third of the way, and that's McBurney's point. And so, uh, by the way, did anybody see the great Bernie Sanders memes of, they put Bernie Sanders uh, in that chair at the inauguration uh, on the Adventist McBurney's point? So I thought that was, <laughs> that was amazing. So, uh, so, so yeah, show notes. yeah, exactly. It actually... Maybe I'm maybe I'm interpreting this wrong. It looks like the absence of right lower quadrant tenderness to palpation uh, was the most helpful for uh, for appendicitis. If you're if you're looking for appendicitis, so so can I? Yes, and there can yes. oh, yeah, so, please, please. So again, um, positive tests and negative tests are different. And, 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 right. and so I actually think that's a, a thing that I, it took me many years to get my head around in, in teaching physical examination because some tests are pretty darn sensitive and less health and, and thus helpful in a, decreasing the probability of disease. Some tests are quite specific at increasing the post-test probability of disease, but unfortunately it's actually somewhat uncommon that those tests are the same. So take, for example, uh, we're just, I'll just, the best example I have there is D-dimer. D-dimer is a really sensitive test. It, it's a sure. really good test at eliminating the potential that a patient has a venothromboembolism in the right population. 
and it's present, it doesn't mean a lot sometimes. Um, and so we have to think about that. And so, so I, I will say here, so when we look at, when I said McBurney's point positive, tenderness to palpation of McBurney's point has the highest positive likelihood ratio, absence of tenderness there is slightly less helpful than absence of general right lower quadrant tenderness to palpation. And so again, they're not always two sides of the same coin, and that can be a little bit challenging. Now, there's a few others here, Rosvig sign, which is uh, when you palpate the contralateral side, palpate the, the left lower quadrant, and you have pain in the right lower quadrant. Getting to this point where it's really a middling uh, a positive likelihood ratio and the negative isn't really helpful. Remember, a negative likelihood ratio, it's 0.8 for that one, but a negative likelihood ratio of one, the definition of that is as good as a coin flip. We got to remember that, that when you really, that's what you're doing. And, and I think this might be apocryphal, but I like to use it. So, so since when did I let the truth? So, so, so uh, uh, Dr. Jonathan Holmans, for whom Holman sign was named, said, I read this somewhere, but he said, if you're going to get a physical exam sign named after you, why don't you pick one that's at least good? Or something like that. And, and so, so, yeah. so I think that he said, like, this test that was named after him is worthless. It's not, it's, it's not even not good. It's just worthless. And so I think some of these, unfortunately, are. Um, now, now, why did these tests come up? They didn't have CT. They didn't have ultrasound. And they were trying to perform an, a surgery that was not low risk at that point in time and, and decrease their negative appy rate. Remember, the negative appy rate these days is very low, handful of percent. Uh, in most experienced centers. And that's not the case. They used to say, you know, you hear these things bandied about still that if you're not taking out uh, negative appendicitis, you're not doing enough or something like that. And, and I think that that's, some of this came from that. And so um, while there is value in some of these, I think that, that we have to, to remember the context in which these things uh, were developed. The, the last one I'm really glad that I don't have to teach anymore is the obturator sign, uh, which is when you stretch the obturator muscle uh, you're trying to to um, uh, stimulate inflammation there, and it hurts. And I can never do it, and it's not helpful anyway. So we can just leave it there. <laughs> so you may have been doing it perfect, by the yeah, way. I nailed it. I'm, I'm just great. <laughs> you may have been crushing it. It doesn't awesome. matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paul, I'm really excited to tell the audience about this new sponsor of ours, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And one of the reasons I'm excited, Paul, you know we've talked about this a lot on the show. We talk about wellness taking care of yourself. And uh, this is something that I feel really strongly about. We've done episodes on physician depression and suicide. And this product is actually one that I have used. And I think it's fantastic because it's really making it easier for me as a physician to access this service. I can do this from my home, either with phone or video. And it's it's been fantastic. Yeah, and you you know you don't even really have to be in healthcare to be stressed out right now. I think it, it better help you probably like it's just it's it's, it's, a, it's a stressful time to be alive, and so I think BetterHelp can help assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under forty eight hours. Um, it's important to note this is not a crisis line. It's not self help. This is professional counseling done securely online. The online counselors have a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas to to a lot of our listeners, and the service is available for clients worldwide. So you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you will get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly either phone or video sessions with your counselor, so you won't ever have to worry about sitting in those like uncomfortable waiting rooms in a traditional therapist's office, which is something that I really enjoy. It really just like removes the bar to get yourself into therapy and counseling. 
Right. And it sounds like you're not locked in either. So BetterHelp, they're committed to facilitating a great therapeutic relationship. So you can change your counselor uh, for free if you need to. So if you're not, if you don't have quite the therapeutic alliance you're hoping for, it's easy and it's free to change counselors if you need to. And this tends to be more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available to those who qualify. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And we want this for our audience as well. So if you are out there in healthcare, it's been a tough year. Get yourself taken care of. You can visit their website and read their testimonials. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash curb. That's better H-E-L-P and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Curbsider listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. Justin, should we move the case along? Yeah, and- well, and I think um, we'll move the case. Al- yeah, let's move the case along. And then we can summarize uh, kind of some. Uh, this is perfect that we've, I think, talked about some of which maneuvers are the highest yield. And we can summarize without going through all the numbers. Um, but actually, may- maybe if you, if it's OK with you, Matt, we'll, uh, a very quick recap of some of the maneuvers we talked about and pulling up the numbers. Uh, everything that you know, Dr. Olson mentioned does align with some of the uh, likelihood ratios that come from previous studies. So um, first and foremost, clinical gestalt, the eyeball test, uh, according to one study, had a likelihood ratio of 25 to 35, um, a positive likelihood ratio of 25 to 30, uh, which I think, again, kind of reemphasizes the importance of clinical gestalt. And that was for acute abdomen? That was for, I think that was for cholecystitis specifically. Um and can you, I'm sorry, Justin, can you clarify what clinical gestalt means? Is that like just the, when you say the eyeball test, I think of like walking in the room, looking at a patient thinking, oh no, or is that like taking the history, doing the examination, um, running your test and then come up with the diagnosis? Like what, what do they mean by gestalt in this particular instance? It is everything you're right. So it's not just the eyeball test. It's t- taking, uh, including history, including basic lab tests, but having just an overall understanding of, of a physician's gestalt. Do you think this is cholecystitis? And then confirmed by the gold standard, which I imagine is imaging. So, um, gotcha. or, uh, uh, surgery, I actually don't know, but we can have this in the sh- show notes. Um, and then other ones that I think were, uh, again, just to, to kind of recap this rebound tenderness for peritonitis did show to be pretty well, especially with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.4 rigidity for peritonitis, a likelihood ratio of 3.6, pretty good, um, percussion for, uh, peritonitis also likelihood ratio of about 2.5 negative of 0.5. We'll move the case along for this patient. Um, but so Mr. Coley, when you see him, he's reporting severe tenderness really when palpating his entire abdomen, but it is worse in the right upper quadrant. He's guarding when you examine him and the pain does hurt even more when you release. So he has positive rebound tenderness. Uh, we feel pretty confident this is a surgical abdomen based on how he's looking and need imaging. So what did our exam tell us that we didn't already know? How did this really help guide our treatment decision based on the fact that the pain was worse than the right upper quadrant, based on guarding and based on this positive rebound tenderness. Yeah. So, so that's really great frame for this. And, and as I think through it, I want to go back and just add one quick thing. We didn't talk about guarding um, because rigidity and guarding actually are, are, are related, but not exactly the same. And I think we oft confuse them. 
Uh, and so guarding is actually can be voluntary or involuntary and associated with rigidity, but it's a spectrum that if I know you're going to palpate my belly and it hurts, I'm going to contract my muscles. Uh, and so there is voluntary guarding. Uh, and that's often, you know, you got cold hands, doc, you know, all the way to, to, to involuntary guarding slash rigidity. So just to, 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 to clarify that point. But, so now, Interestingly, I was really focused on this patient's lower abdomen, and I was thinking, you know, is this appendicitis? Is this uh, mesenteric ischemia? Is there something going on? Is this diverticulitis, a diagnosis that's becoming probably less important because we're treating it very differently? Uh, but, 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 uh, but as I look at this, I'm now thinking, what's going on in this guy's right upper quadrant? And one of my great regrets in medical school is that I did not learn the biliary tract as well as I should have because, oh my gosh, it's important, right? And so I'm trying to now classify what is the urgency of this patient's problem. And if we talk about right upper quadrant abdominal pain, especially biliary tract disease, I think it's important to think what are the sequelae, uh, consequences, and urgencies of the problems there. And so if we take simple cholecystitis, inflection of the gallbladder, usually caused by an obstructing uh, stone in the gallbladder neck, that's a patient who needs antibiotics, and the standard of care is to remove their their gallbladder, the same hospitalization. However, if that stone is in a different spot, right, it moves down and now we have cholecystitis, and the patient now has a potential, so they have a stone in their common bile duct, and now they have right upper quadrant pain, but now they're jaundiced and they have a fever, you know where I'm going here, that now I'm worried about ascending cholangitis. And so if we look at the, the, the Charcot's triad, Reynolds-Pentad, is it Reynolds, right? Is it Reynolds? It's Reynolds. Um, were either of the, I hope either none of those guys were like bad in history, but um, so so probably. so they probably were. Just, they probably the pretest. If you run the numbers, the odds are pretty. The good. odds are bad, right? Mean. So yeah. so, but anyway, those guys. Uh, that's actually a really important thing because again, if you have acute cholecystitis, the it's antibiotics and then an operation. The next step actually in addressing the patient with cholecystitis and cholangitis is figuring out is my bile duct patent the common bile duct patent, and do I need to remove something from that as the patient needs an ERCP and things like that. So so uh, the, the other regret I had is I never really learned until I was attending like how good a HIDA scan actually is. It's a very helpful test, figuring out where that bile goes. So, so here what we're trying to figure out is I am going to revisit my exam a little bit here because cholecystitis is an interesting disease and that, that gestalt, that is the clinician saying, I think this patient has cholecystitis is actually quite good. Now, remember that in all of these papers from the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam Series, you have to be careful about who that clinician is because it's often an expert, and they have a great paper on carpal tunnel syndrome. And they're trying to say, like, who's really good at diagnosing carpal tunnel syndrome? The referral population there is in hand clinic in general. And so same thing with, uh, with does this patient have a torn meniscus of the knee? It's probably not the ER. So you want to figure out where, what population that's drawn from a good rule of thumb is everything looks worse once you get outside the expert population. Um, so experts are really experts. Um, and, and so here, but again, uh, we look at Murphy's sign. A well-performed Murphy's sign has a good positive likelihood ratio. The negative is a bit less helpful. Nothing's really great at ruling this out. Again, Gestalt overall is, is quite helpful. Uh, and so, you know, the, the overall Gestalt of 25 to 30, that's about as slam dunk as Paul was looking for a slam dunk earlier. And that's about as close as you can get. I, 
we, we, we would be remiss, by the way, if we didn't give a shout out to the, the first author of this paper is, is Dr. Bob Trowbridge up at Maine Medical Center, who has uh, taught many of us a lot over the years. So it's a, a work of his. But but I, I think that that here, um, the other thing that, that we can consider is the sonographic Murphy sign. Um, and so the sonographic Murphy sign is actually better than the physical exam Murphy sign alone. And as actually part of your, your radiologist report that the tech does. And to remind everybody what the uh, Murphy sign is, it is not right upper quadrant tenderness, right? It's cessation of inspiration with palpation over the gallbladder. And so uh, uh, same thing with, with the sonographic Murphy sign is you place the ultrasound probe. Uh, patients, you see where the, where the and when the, the gallbladder comes up and presses against that, the patient stops breathing. Um, they stop their inspiration. That's a positive sign. So those are a little bit helpful. You know, most of these things, it, it, again, though, if it's this right upper quadrant, I'm thinking right upper quadrant ultrasound uh, versus right lower quadrant. Uh, depending on the patient's age, I'm going to think ultrasound versus CT. Uh, many of the other things, frankly, turn into a CT. But interestingly, right upper quadrant abdominal pain, the test of choice to begin is often an ultrasound, which I actually think that lowly right upper quadrant ultrasound gives you a ton of diagnostic information. And it's so important to remember that sometimes we get a CT followed by an ultrasound to visualize our bile ducts. And so right. uh, I, I think it's just a really interesting interesting finding. And you can make the diagnosis of cholecystitis. You can actually make the diagnosis of cholangitis by if you have a dilated bile duct, evidence of gallbladder inflammation in a systemically ill patient, all with a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Um, it's a really quite important uh, and I think uh, uh, under-recognized test. This is great. So I think to, to recap, we talked about some of the red flag symptoms of rigidity, which is all a spectrum of guarding, of voluntary or to involuntary guarding, um, rebound tenderness, and then percussion tenderness for, for peritonitis. We've talked about clinical gestalt for cholecystitis being Paul's uh, best exam of uh, getting a test that lets you know the, the answer. And then things like the psoas and obturator signs, not that helpful, but mid-Bernie's point um, and Murphy's sign are potentially helpful for appendicitis and cholecystitis, uh, respectively. And, One, and, oh, sorry, Justin. Sorry, Justin. No, please. I, I think in many of these things are more helpful when present than when absent, I, I think is the other challenge. And so uh, if we take, for example, the patient with right lower quadrant abdominal pain, um, it's somewhat, not easy is the wrong word. None of this is easy. But none of medicine is easy. But if we take the patient who comes in with right lower quadrant abdominal pain, it's easier to establish rather than refute the diagnosis of appendicitis. That's why we admit patients to watch them to see if they develop it, right? And so I think it's just a helpful thing to think about. And there's all sorts of scores in kids that we're not going to go over, um, Elvarado score and all those things. But, but I think that's one of those things that when you have look at a disease that has a lot of positive likelihood ratios but fewer negative likelihood ratios, uh, it, it's, it, it can give you that clue that it's easier uh, sometimes to rule it in uh, than it is to rule it out. This is great. Um, and I think, Sam, you're putting out time. So I think maybe one other thing to talk about for urgent and then moving on to the next cases, which I think we can go through a little quicker. Um, one other concern that I think comes up for acute abdomen or something that I'd be worried about overnight as the intern is a obstruction, is a bowel obstruction. What's your approach as far as uh, trying to rule that in or out? So so a bowel obstruction, specifically a, the, the most common one we will see is a small bowel obstruction, although remember obstruction can happen anywhere. And I think that all of us have seen the patient with the gastric outlet obstruction. And, and you know when a patient has a gastric outlet obstruction, they give you this history that I eat and I throw up immediately and it's very forceful. Um, I don't have the signs for this, but there is the, one of the, the best physical exam findings. There is the succussion splash. 
right, where, where you listen over the patient's stomach. Uh, and when there's the forceful peristalsis against the, the, the obstruction near the pylorus, you actually hear a splash. I, I, I heard it once when I was an intern at the San Francisco VA, and um, I, my, my life was never going to be the same. Uh, but did did you all ever do that as a kid? I just remember being at like soccer practice and we eat and you just like shake your belly and you can hear as a kid. I remember having that. Uh, I don't think it was pathologic. I think we were just, you made it out. Okay. So (laughs) tests have false positives, right? So, 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 but I think if we go down and we look at bowel obstruction, I I think that, that, this is one of those times that that I have often maligned is the word I've often maligned uh, bowel sounds, and it turns out that in most patients they don't really matter. Sorry, but in this case it actually does. And that hyperactive bowel sound uh, is actually that that tinkling that the the bowel sounds that you hear in a patient with a true mechanical obstruction. We're not talking about ileus, not talking about Ogilvy syndrome here. We're talking about a real mechanical obstruction. You actually do hear uh, hyperactive bowel sounds. Um, and then you're going to see abdominal distension again. Um, and abdominal distension, I think, is a, is a really helpful thing. But the other thing is the patient with a true mechanical bowel obstruction, the patient who has a transition point on their CT, you're going to know that quickly. They're generally vomiting. They're in pretty significant pain if that, depending on the, the vascular integrity of the, the, the bowel that's involved. Uh, you may actually have lactic acidosis and, and all the way worsening to shock. Um, but I think uh, similar, you know, early on I talked about the, the humility associated with, with mesenteric ischemia. I've been humbled by a lot of bowel obstructions over time as well. Um, and there it's the patient comes in with vomiting. They appear to, and often the imaging comes there sooner. Um, and you're saying, okay, there's a transition point or not. But interestingly, what's fascinating about bowel obstructions is not the index exam is the question, does this patient have a bowel obstruction? Because you're going to get to that diagnosis pretty quickly in the, in the emergency department or early in the hospital, but you have to follow and say, does this patient still have a bowel obstruction hospital day two, hospital day three. And then you get into this patient still have a bowel obstruction and do they need an operation to fix it? And so I actually think this is one of those things that I'm not sure the evidence is as helpful here because this is for diagnosis. And really, this is one of those serial exams that we're going to follow over time to say, does this patient still have a bowel obstruction? Now, are they passing flatus? Are they still having hyperactive bowel sounds? Are they still distended? Are those things changing? And I, I don't have the evidence for those except to say, I actually think those findings are really strikingly important uh, in, in following that patient who we are now following improvement of their bowel function uh, and resolution of that likely mechanical bowel obstruction. We're following that clinically. Um, and sometimes they'll actually choose to operate without repeat imaging. So, so I, I think just kind of interesting to think about how we apply tests differently uh, and apply in a serial way, um, which much of the evidence base won't let us know about. Can I ask just a simple question? How do you listen for bowel sounds or how long should you be listening? I, I just, I'm thinking of a, an attending that I had all the way back in medical school who was a genius and like had seriously considered writing a book on bowel sounds, but said in all seriousness, he had to listen for at least two minutes before he could actually make a decision about the presence or absence of bowel sounds even like, so what do we, what, what's enough and when can you, uh, when can you be done? Yeah. That's my the other question I ask often. So, so when you hear them, you can be done, right? So, so, right. so, and, and I actually think that, you know, props to your attending and, and, and no disrespect, but, but many people will say you need to listen for 30 seconds. Um, to, to say they're there. But but really, I'm much more concerned in this setting about hyperactive bowel sounds than I am hypoactive bowel sounds. And so if I hear high-pitched tinkling, if I hear really significant hyperactivity, there's no value in listening to that for much longer. 
Um, now, the, the corollary there is you're saying, okay, am I, am I listening for hypoactive or absent vowel sounds? Um, you know, and right. absent vowel sounds are classically taught in, in especially the patient who's got an ileus for some reason, but often in the, um, I think of that with an ischemic picture. The bowel is dead. I don't have the data around that, but I don't think it's going to really help you seal that diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia. So I think you can have your 90 seconds back, and I think 30 seconds is probably enough. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. So blessed silence. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sam Mazur, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov does our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. And we would be remiss if we didn't thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and we should also thank Claire Morgan of Not Early for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.